You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The market all but certain the Fed's going to raise rates tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, but it's not what the Fed does. It's what Powell says that could determine where the market goes next. We're going to look at what to expect, how to position from here. Plus, shares of Alaska Air down about 9.5% on disappointing revenue guidance. It's uh, dragging the rest of the airline stocks down with it. We will talk live and exclusively with the CEO about what's going on with that guide, what it means for air travel and ticket prices ahead. And Google Parent Alphabet on deck to report. Our guest says now is the time to buy. He's going to make his case coming up. We're going to start with today's markets. Dom Chu has the numbers. Dom? John, they are bid right now. You can see here we are just about at session highs right now with the S&P 500 up about 18 points. Again, session highs right now, 45.73, just a notch below the 52-week highs that we got over this past week. The Dow Industrial is up one quarter of 1%, 97 points, 35,508. And the NASDAQ Composite, really the advancer so far today, up about three quarters of 1%, 115 points to the upside, 14,174. And by by the way, you can see mostly green behind me, but it's some of those economically sensitive sectors that are leading the way higher. With regard to one of the thematic trades playing out today, the housing sector, real estate markets have been red hot overall. If you take a look at some of these home building stocks, check out what's happening with Pulte Group, one of the better performers in the S&P 500, up five and a half percent after its profits and revenues come in this morning, better than expectations. Why? Because people still demand housing new housing construction, and by the way, they're raising prices, maybe expanding profit margins. So Pulte Group up 5.5%. NVR, DR, Horton, Lennar, some of the big home building peers that are catching a sympathy bid along with that. And the iShares Dow Jones U.S. Home Construction ETF ticker ITB is up 1.5% as well. And one of the bigger downside moves that we're seeing today outside of the S&P 500 comes from streaming audio and podcast giant Spotify. Those shares down 14 and a quarter percent right now after its revenue comes in lighter than expectations, as does its full year revenue forecast. They did add subscribers and premium subscribers as well. So there's a little push pull. But on balance, John, for a stock that was up 130 percent, going over the course of the year-to-day period and then now dropping about 23% from that high, as you can see there. Spotify, really a big mover on the day. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, investors turning down the volume. Not the trade volume, but uh, the volume on the share price. Thanks. Uh, We've got just 24 hours until the Fed's decision on interest rates. Forecasters are feeling a bit more optimistic about the economy. Steve Leisman has the details of that from CNBC's latest Fed survey. Steve? Hey, John, good afternoon. There's a fairly consistent pattern where the most recent quarter, which is supposed to be terrible, ends up being revised up and somewhat less than terrible. Uh, And it's finally being projected forward, I think, now, where odds of a recession are being reduced by respondents to the survey. Take a look at the GDP forecast for 2023. In January, they thought it was going to be 0.04%. Now they're up to 1.23%. They've taken that out of the outlook for 2024, where they expected to have something of a bounce back from a really low rate. Now uh, it's more along the line of 1.3%, which is below potential, but far from a recession. You can see that if you look at the quarterly numbers, they were all pretty much revised up. A big number there, uh, second quarter, the one we just finished, it had been 0.5% in May. Now, then it went to 1.4. Now it's at 1.7. I've seen numbers as high as 2.5 from some of the forecasters out there. And same with all the other numbers. They're nothing to write home about. They're all anemic, 
but they're also not negative and they're above where they where they were they're all it's not a recession built in another reason respondents have a hard time forecasting a recession is what they think is going to happen to the unemployment rate they see only a modest increase to still low levels three six now goes to four and then up to four point four one so not quite a percentage point built in in terms of the deterioration in the job market all of that leading to what we're talking about here the decline in recession probabilities in this survey for the first time in a year now below 50 percent the low point had been 19 percent in december 2021 that went all the way up to 63 amid rampant fears of recession now it's back down still elevated but at 50 percent or 48 percent the lowest since may 2022 and then look at the fed outlook here 5.13 now they think it goes up by Oh, a little bit more than a quarter. There's some people that are baking in that second one. But the overall opinion is that it's one more hike and done. And then it sort of stays there through December. And then we've talked about, you did yesterday, those cuts built in for next year. Risk levels are still high, just not as high as they were. And the chance of the Fed doing too much, as you know, John, remains one of the risks they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Things are just kind of working out. I'll mention all the major indices uh, so far today. Also right up there near session highs. I mean, not a dramatic move higher, but things are just economically sort of working out. St stick with us, Steve. Uh, my next guest says a disinflationary soft landing is clearly in view, and what the Fed is doing now is figuring out the appropriate end game for this tightening cycle. Joining me now is Paul McCulley, former chief economist at PIMCO, currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Um, so, Paul, th this hasn't shaped up exactly like you thought it would, say, three-ish months ago, because, yeah, they're looking at possibly two hikes. They're not done, and yet... Things sort of seem to be working out. So, so what's Powell going to potentially say one side of the other that, that's going to affect the markets uh, after tomorrow? Yeah, I, I think the markets have been in line with a more positive outlook, a soft landing outlook. Uh, so the markets have been there, but the Fed does not want to declare victory. That is the bottom line. Uh, they paused at the last meeting, but they put two more hikes uh, into the projections for end of year. So the bottom line is the economy is doing better. Disinflation is happening. Soft landing is coming into vision. All of that is good news, but the Fed's not going to declare victory until it sees the whites of the eyes <laughs> of a weaker labor market. It hasn't seen that yet, so I think they will tighten, obviously, tomorrow. Uh, and I think Chair Powell will reiterate uh, that the projections have another hike before the end of the year and that he thinks it's still likely unless the data come in uh, on a positive surprise, both on inflation and softer labor. So uh, okay. we're almost there, but we're not there. And he ain't going to declare victory early. He's okay. going to declare victory late. Paul, hang tight. Uh, we want to bring... Ian Rick Santelli here. Five-year notes up for auction. Let's see how they did from the CME. Rick? Yes, John, it was a very interesting auction. 43 billion five-year notes. The yield at the Dutch auction, 4.17%. The one issued market was around 4.165. So 4.16 and a half lower yield, okay, higher price. So we tailed a half a basis point. That's where the biggest the demerits come in with respect to the grade, which is a B minus.
but a B minus for a bad pricing is a really great grade. So what's up? Well, I'll tell you. If you look at one of the uh, metrics, the direct bidders, you know, pension funds, insurers, at 22.1%, that was the most aggressive bidding by that group, well, since July of 2014. Nine years, nine years, and that really put it over the top because all the other metrics were pretty darn good. It priced a little sloppy, but then again, trying to catch that falling knife, trying to buy this part of the curve, which has been ultra stable with respect to firmness of rates, is definitely a bit of a challenge. John Ford, back to you. All right, B minus. Rick, thanks. Uh, Steve Leesman, getting back to the conversation that we were just having about uh, what's the Fed to do, and, and Paul was mentioning they're not declaring victory, they can't, right? Because inflation has been relatively, you know, core inflation, stubborn. Yeah. I think I heard a sound of a large exhale around noon, uh, and it came from the Federal Reserve, John, when UPS uh, signed that contract with the Teamsters. I think they're very happy about that, that that was done and does not seem to have been done over the top. Um, I'm also really interested in what Rick was reporting and, and I want to engage uh, Mr. McCulley on this, John, which is what you don't want to be, I think, is an institutional bond investor and look back on the possibility that the Fed is at or near the end of its hiking cycle and you missed a big, juicy 4.17% possibility of a yield on that five-year. At some point here, at some point, those long-end yields will start to look good if indeed there's a sense that the Fed is done here with the question and the proviso is whether or not somehow that curve reinverts, but perhaps it pivots along the long end and comes down. And John, just for the investors at home, what I'm really asking about is, is this the time to think about locking in some rates because perhaps the long end is done? Yeah. And, and just to, to add a little to that before, Paul, you jump in. I mean, everybody's feeling really good about what they're getting on savings right now, but that's going to fluctuate when rates come down. So if you lock in, you don't have to worry about that. Paul? I, I think there's a lot of merit in moving into the belly of the curve, which would be the three, five, seven area of the curve. Uh, not so much the longer end of the curve, but yes, I think now is the time that, you know, if I was still managing portfolios for other people's money, I would want to be at least neutral of duration versus the benchmark, and I would want to be in the belly of the curve uh, in anticipation that the Fed's going to stop, uh, and then looking out into 24, uh, that as the economy soft lands and then jobs slow down and, and so forth, then we actually will get an easing and a re-sloping of the curve. Um, and in fact, in fact, I think that's the most exciting and interesting thing to talk about looking out to 24 is the Fed itself is forecasting easing, not this year, but next year. And right now they're in the end game for the tightening process. But soon, perhaps this fall, perhaps at Jackson Hole, the Fed will start have to talking, so have to start talking about the easing process so Paul, for 24. Let, let me ask another one for the folks at home. What about some of these bond funds out there where the yields are pretty good, um, you know, there's not an inordinate amount of risk in some of these, but people are feeling a little bit spooked based on what happened in 2022. You know, the prices came way, way down. The flip side of that is the yields are now up, but there's been such a bias toward equities for years that they might be staying away. Similar situation where that's a way 
for the folks at home to perhaps play this and uh, kind of rebalance their portfolios? Well, I guess down to the whole issue for folks at home, the equity versus fixed income. But as you get older, you're more focused towards fixed income. Uh, and obviously, a lot of people got surprised last year that actually bond prices go down when interest <laughs> rates go up. So they got to see that red ink on their statements. But from this perspective, you know, in the four to five range for the belly of the curve, uh, then I think uh, it's a it's a it's a good opportunity to lock in those yields, and if you can try to have you know the memory of what happened last year with respect to the prices of your funds be in the in the rearview mirror. But I know it's hard. It's probably the biggest question I get asked when I'm out and about here uh, is you know what happened to my bond portfolio? Interest rates went up. Bottom line, now they're up. You need to buy some bonds. All right. You heard it here. We didn't shy away from the, from the bond story. Paul, Steve, thank you. In the meantime, Alaska Air having its worst day in 16 months after forecasting annual revenue below estimates. The, customy, the company sees sales growing about 8 to 10% this year versus analyst expectations of about 11. For more, I'm joined by our Phil LeBeau along with the CEO of Alaska Air. Phil, you can go ahead and kick things off. Thank you, John. Ben Minicucci, thank you for joining us today. Um, you've seen the reaction of your stock today. doesn't matter that you beat the street on the top and the bottom line in the second quarter, and you had a very nice quarter. Your guidance has people spooked. What's changed? Hey, good morning, Phil. Good morning, John, from Seattle. Uh, well, Phil, let me unpack it a little bit for you. So let me start with Q2. Q2 was a fantastic quarter for us. Uh, you know, we, we're going to probably lead the industry in pre-tax margin uh, and I just want to take a moment to thank our employees for just for a fantastic quarter, not only on the financial side, but we led the industry in operational performance. You know, for heading into Q3, and you've interviewed other airline CEOs, you're seeing a massive surge in international travel. And honestly, I think that's a good thing for our industry to have, uh, you know, international come back the way it is, because, you know, we serve a lot of our uh, uh, global partners internationally, but that's having a little bit of a modest impact on domestic fares. So that notwithstanding, we're still going to have a strong Q3. We're still gonna, we're still reiterating our full year margin guide of uh, nine to twelve percent our EPS guidance, uh, but we are seeing some deceleration in our unit revenues heading into Q3. And that's why you have uh, a guidance in terms of RASM, revenue per available seat mile, that is below what analysts are expecting for the third quarter. How much pricing power are you losing, Ben? And, and in layman's terms, are you basically saying, hey, the, the domestic travel boom is cooling off? You know, not quite the opposite, Phil. I, you know, demand domestically is still strong. We're flying some of our highest load factors. Uh, so that so that, that's one thing we just have to remember. Uh, so, the, you know, uh, load factors are high, demand is strong. Like I said, you know, the international surge is having an impact on domestic fares. But I will remind you that domestic fares are still significantly higher than they were pre-pandemic in 2019. So we feel good about where the industry is. I feel good about where Alaska's positioned uh, now into the quarter, into the end of the year. So, uh, you know, we're not hitting the panic button. You know, if we have to make adjustments, we will. But we still think we're in a solid, solid position. If that, Ben, if that demand, indulge me for a second, if that demand is still as strong as it is, why are we seeing the, the loss of pricing power that we would expect you to be able to maintain? Well, you know, Phil, that's a great question. So, like, just in terms of context, you know, the, uh, you know, there's a, a few points of load factor that are moving to international. And just for context, we put, 
uh, our loyalty members are filling up the equivalent of 18 787s every day through our global partnership and through One World, which we're a part of. So, you know, these are these were customers, and that's 50% higher than it was last year. So these are customers last year that were flying domestically uh, that now are flying internationally. So I think that's where you're seeing a little bit of that uh, drop in in domestic uh, domestic fares, but low, demand is still strong. Fares are still strong, and I think what we see is you know this international surge is going to last between maybe June, maybe through September, October. But but when kids are back in school, uh, you know the balance between domestic and international will normalize, and I think you'll see this get back to uh, a more steady state. Ben, your routes are primarily focused in the Western U.S., so you've been able to avoid a lot of the storms that have just made schedules a mess on the eastern half of the United States, primarily on the East Coast. But you've got strong heat wave that continues to really hammer the southwest where you have a number of operations and uh, it's a big area for you in terms of your where your flights are to. Is that impacting your operations at all? You know, Phil, well, I'll say about extreme temperatures, whether it's too hot or too cold, it does impact operations because, you know, it's hard on machines, and more importantly, it's hard on people. So you got to put safety first and as you're operating. So we are impacted uh, by, you know, those extremes. Uh, but what I will say is that in the areas that we don't have um, uh, extreme temperatures, we're operating extremely well. And uh, again, uh, kudos to our people that are running, you know, the best operation in the country. But those are extremes, Phil, that are tough to operate in. There's no question. How much does that hurt you? How much of a headwind is it? You know, it's a few points for sure. Like, for example, in the New York area, you know, we got over 30 flights a day in the New York area that impacted us significantly. We didn't have many cancels, but those are flights that were delayed significantly or even diverted before they can get in. So it does have a, a huge impact on us and, of course, on our guests. Ben, thank you very much for explaining the guidance, uh, which obviously is hitting your stock today. We appreciate you joining us from the Alaska Airlines headquarters in Seattle. John, I will send it back to you. Phil LeBeau, thank you. Important details there in the balance between domestic and international, what happens after September, the extreme weather. So thank you, Phil and Ben Minicucci from Alaska Air. Coming up, Alphabet is up about 40% to start the year, but still underperforming its mega cap peers. Our next guest says he's staying bullish, says the stock's trading at a discount. He'll make his case ahead of earnings next. Plus, rising rates have real estate firms racing to cut costs. CEO of Anywhere joins us fresh off earnings with that stock up, whoa, 10% on how realtors are navigating a challenging housing market. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. The Dow is higher by nearly 80 points. The S&P up almost half a percent. The Nasdaq, the best performer of all, up about 0.85. The exchange is back after this. Shares of Google parent Alphabet up a little bit more than a percent ahead of earnings after the bell, outperforming the Nasdaq, but not doing as well as Microsoft, up about a percent and a half, also reports today. Uh, For the year, Alphabet's up about 38 percent, still underperforming mega cap peers overall, not just today. That's one of the reasons why my next guest says the time to buy is now, while the stock is trading at a discount. He also says AI concerns are overblown. He's got an outperform on the stock, $145 price target, which implies a 20% move from here. Joining me now, Jason Helfstein, Internet Analyst at Oppenheimer. Jason, um, you know, I'm looking at the chart. I'm no chartist, but it seems like the question is, does it go back close to 150 where it was in late 2021 or closer to 100 where it was in March and April? 
what's, what's the key number or two from the report later today that that's going to determine which way it goes? Does it have to do with YouTube? Does it have to do with Google Cloud? I mean, I would say that the, the core advertising number is probably the most important, right? It drives most of the earnings of the company. We're looking for 4% growth. Um, you know, the general view is that advertising, you know, did not get worse in the quarter and should get marginally better in, in the next quarter. Um, you've also had cost cutting going on at the company. Um, they really don't give a lot of, of, of forward commentary. So it, it's it's us analysts guessing. But we do think you should start to see margin flow through. And while there is a concern about AI's impact on margins, that's not going to happen yet. But I just wonder, is that enough? Is the core business performing to expectation enough to take it up to 145, 150 area? Or do they have to have one of those growth areas or one of those areas that have been shakier? Again, I'm going back to YouTube and Google Cloud sort of outperform perform well to show people, oh, well, it's not just Microsoft that can do well in this game and have a portfolio that performs in uh, uncertain times? Yeah, I, I mean, y you're not going to see AI in the numbers yet, right? I mean, uh, Microsoft will talk about Azure, but um, we don't think AI is doing anything right now for Bing. In fact, in June, Bing traffic was down month to month. So that should make people feel better about the, the impact on Google. We think their search traffic has been quite stable. There is a long-term margin question here. Um, you know, how dilutive is AI to margins? We have 4% CapEx growth for next year. That, that's probably too low. But the street, the buy side has particularly, you know, th there's just no, I, there's, a, there's a lot of confusion on where are margins in the back half of the year and concerns that margins actually go down next year. Now so why, that, why is AI dilutive to margins? Just because you got to pay NVIDIA? Uh, you know, on the uh, no, CapEx just, side, learn to do it, or Gen AI searches are more expensive to run uh -huh. uh, than a traditional search. Right now, we don't know what percent of Google searches will be Gen AI in the future versus a traditional search. And I think people have found that for most things they want to do, a traditional search actually today generates better results than a Gen AI search. That being said, uh, AI is going to be integrated in all parts of the business in, in G Suite. Um, and, and they're going to just have to you know, deal with that. They are trying to drive down costs. And I do think um, over the next 12 months, you're going to find that the cost to do this is going to get a lot less now, than what has been talked about before. Does that have to do with custom chips, right? Because uh, Amazon's talking about that. Microsoft's certainly doing it. So is Google. If their chips can reach a performance level where they don't have to buy as much from, say, NVIDIA, which we know because its stock price has gone way up, they're able to charge and get excellent margins. If they're able to do more in-house and vertically integrate, does that help the margins on the AI story? Maybe not within search itself immediately, but longer term. I, I think really it's about um, Alphabet using what they understand about all the information out there and actually shrinking the size of the data you have to look at to train and use AI. So when you have to understand everything that's ever been in the history of all time, that's quite expensive. If you can narrow that scope because you understand based on your existing businesses, your existing data, look, the user is probably just looking for an answer or a solution in, in this narrower set. That's much less expensive. But yes, I mean, Google keeps talking about, uh, you know, pushing out their depreciable life of, of their data centers. That's additive to margins. It's causing confusion about, you know, what the right number should be. But that's that's additive to margins. And so we think that, you know, the longer AI is around, the more mm -hmm. efficient 
it, it'll continue to get. And we think Google's going to talk about that this quarter. What does the street need to hear on costs? Um, expecting to see more cuts or just discipline in hiring or what? Uh, I mean, it's a little both. We have headcount up 4% this quarter. It was a 14% last quarter. We have it pretty flat the next few quarters. Um, and then kind of cost per employee, you know, was down 7% last quarter. And there's been a number of press reports of that trying to be more efficient with office space and, and, and other other things. Um, that being said, you know, they've been trying not to fire people. So, you know, the question is with an improving ad market, which we think that's you will see that in their numbers this quarter. Can that flow to the bottom line? All right. We'll see what Ruth Porat and others have to say. Numbers break on CNBC in overtime. Jason Helstein, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the latest read on luxury spending in China, what that means for the health of high-end retail here at home. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. UPS and the Teamsters Union have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract. The deal comes just days before a threatened strike that would have impacted deliveries across the country. UPS CEO Carol Tomey said, told NBC News that the parties reached a win-win-win agreement. The agreement covers hundreds of thousands of workers and is awaiting UPS employee approval before taking effect. Just minutes ago, President Biden signed a proclamation establishing a national monument for Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. The black teenager was abducted and killed in 1955, and his shocking murder helped fuel the civil rights movement. The monument is located across three sites in two states, including a church in Chicago, where thousands had gathered for his funeral. And some bad news for people with summer travel plans. Gas prices are on the rise. AAA says the average price per gallon in the U.S. is up to $3.63, $0.09 higher than last week, and $0.04 higher just overnight. John, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you. Uh, Coming up, new numbers on where home prices are headed and a a read on how realtors are dealing with rising rates. It's an exclusive interview with the CEO of Anywhere Real Estate. On the other side of this break, Exchange will be right back. back. The iShares home construction ETF climbing today after the S&P Case-Shiller index showed some prices in May rose. Home prices rose for the fourth straight month. But there's a noteworthy trend emerging in those numbers. And Diana Olick joins us with it. Diana. Well, John, the gains come despite a sharp jump in mortgage rates during the month. And I'll get to that in a minute. But prices nationally rose 0.7 percent month to month, seasonally adjusted on the Case-Shiller Index, still down 0.5 percent compared with May of last year. But they are just 1 percent below their June 2022 peak. Now, home prices began to fall in June of last year after mortgage rates took off higher. Experts at S&P Dow Jones say this bolsters the case that January this January was the bottom for the cycle. They also noted regional differences in prices are striking. The Rust Belt is suddenly taking off. Prices gained the most in Chicago, Cleveland, and New York. The Midwest took over the South's reign as the strongest region. It's been five years since cold-weather cities took the top spots. Cities in the West, where prices had inflated the most, were the worst performers in May, Seattle, San Francisco, and Phoenix. Mortgage rates did come down a bit in the three months that make up this running average of the May report, but they shot higher in mid-May. The 30-year fixed crossed back over 7% just this morning, John, to 7.04%. 
Diana, what does this mean for post-COVID trends? Uh, you know, maybe adding in the other things that you see about uh, when, when people were moving away from cities, maybe into exurbs, along with this data. What does the picture tell us about uh, how people are treating real estate? Well, I don't know what it says about the trend specifically post-COVID. We're seeing people move less. The issue is there's no supply. There is nothing for sale, so you can't move if you can't buy something. And people are still holding on to their homes. That is, sellers don't want to put homes on the market because they likely carry a mortgage rate that's 3 or 4%, and they don't want to trade up to 7%. So we have that golden handcuff effect on the supply. And for buyers out there, they're getting used to this new normal of 7%. We are seeing demand. The builders are seeing demand. It's just in the existing market, there's not enough supply. All right. Diana, thank you. Meanwhile, those higher rates are having a big impact on my next guests. Uh, top line, Anywhere Real Estate, parent company of Coldwell Banker, Sotheby's International Realty, and others reported a 22% year-over-year loss in revenue its second quarter uh, as the higher rates kept people from selling their homes. But it wasn't all bad news. Shares of Anywhere have been up more than 11% today after the company reiterated its full-year guidance, said it expects to reach its year-end goal of cutting costs by $200 million. Joining me now for an exclusive interview is Anywhere CEO Ryan Schneider. Ryan, welcome. So uh, this efficiency is a huge part of your story, and you're moving ahead and expanding your franchise business. Explain why that's important to where you're taking this model. Well, John, first off, thank you for having us. Yeah, you know, we're uh, really excited by a number of the things that we're doing, including expanding our high margin franchise business, but also how we're leveraging our national assets in owned brokerage across the great brands that you named, like Sotheby's International Realty and Coldwell Banker. You know, we reported about 125 million of EBITDA this quarter, uh, which is awesome in the challenging housing market, and we think distinguishes ourselves from a number of our competitors. And if you pair that with the cost changes we're making to make ourselves more streamlined in this environment, you can imagine the octane we're going to have economically when the housing market comes back to much more normal levels. So we're pretty excited about it, and obviously like the market's reaction today to our news. Uh, where does, you know, in, in your operations, where does technology, does data fit in? How is that going to factor in as part of this efficiency strategy to prepare for when the market turns back up? Well, it's a big part of the future. You know, for us as Anywhere Real Estate, we're the largest player in this ecosystem across brokerage, franchise, title, mortgage, et cetera. And so we have the most data. We have the unique data scale in our industry. We've been leveraging it for years, John, with machine learning and predictive analytics. But I spent a lot of time on our call today talking about some of the really early things we're seeing with generative AI and large language models. And we think that's going to change both how people execute in the real estate transaction, agents, consumers, people like us, and how we run our company. And my message to our investors and potential investors is we want to be on that forefront of the journey, especially because we have more data than anyone else in the industry. We can train the models better. We can tune them better. Uh, and we think we can get more insights out of them for the future. One of the first places that I heard about this vision of the metaverse is probably 20 years ago, where Oh, we're going to be doing these virtual tours of homes. You know, Redfin and others were out there saying, oh, we, we're not going to need real estate agents anymore. We're going to cut out them. But it, it turns out people really want to trust someone when they're making a transaction that big on either side. And people actually like going to see a home before they buy it. What is really going to change most likely in the next five or 10 years and what won't? 
John, the, the technology has been, is, and will increasingly, even with the generative AI stuff, increasingly, I think, augment humans and augment real estate agents and augment, you know, people like you and I, as we do the things that we're trying to do here. You know, real estate transactions are huge, high dollar things, and they're very infrequent. They lend themselves to a trusted advisor like a real estate agent, and we've seen people vote with their feet and keep using real estate agents. I think things that we're doing today with generative AI, like virtual renovations, are going to be awesome to help consumers make the journey easier, simplify it, but it's not going to change the need for that advisor and the need to go see your house in person before you put down life-changing amounts of money to get your next home and move to what's next. So even as you're expanding your strategy, uh, strategic franchise focus, what are the areas where you vertically integrate? What are the areas perhaps where you bulk up and purchase in order to pursue your vision of that future? Yeah, so we're always looking to purchase in areas of technology that we think can be additive to our ecosystem in the future. We hold a very high bar on that, but it's something that matters because with our market leading scale of, you know, call it 13, 15% market share, we can take a technology and really deploy it out there at scale. So that's absolutely one thing we look at. The second is when you've got franchise brands like Century 21, Sotheby's International Realty, some of the others you mentioned, but we also have owned brokerage brands in Coldwell Banker, in Sotheby's International Realty, in Corcoran, mm. we can integrate across those also and use you know scale, whether it's on purchasing, on technology, on data, et cetera, to make those diverse businesses successful. Ryan, uh, perhaps finally, how concerned should I be about this Airbnb effect I keep hearing about where people have held onto properties that in other markets in previous times they might have unloaded because they're hoping or expecting that they're going to get enough cash flow from them uh, to make the numbers work and that those numbers are dropping in terms of uh, who's willing to go and, and spend time and a lot, enough money at these Airbnb Verbo properties uh, to make the math work. What are you seeing in your data um, to, to shed some light on that? I don't think you should worry that much, John, about the Airbnb effect. I think you should worry about that as a small component to the broader point that Diana made, which is we just do not have enough houses in this country, and we definitely do not have enough houses for sale. There are more houses for sale. I guarantee you our agents could sell them. We want the home builders to succeed and bring new stock to the market. If there is an Airbnb effect and, and you know people start to put those houses on the market, that would be awesome, I think, for society. Um, you know, so anything that will unlock more housing supply in our in our economy uh, would be awesome. And I'm pretty bullish on the medium term for housing because of the demographic trends. But we do need all the different pieces of supply to keep expanding to try to keep up with that. All right, Ryan Schneider, CEO of Anywhere. Thank you. Thank you, John. Coming up, LVMH out with earnings just moments ago. Shares are up more than 25% so far this year. But with signs of slowdowns in two key markets, could that rally soon run out of road? That's next when The Exchange comes right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. LVMH just out with earnings. And the results showed that while the Chinese economy overall slowing, the high-end consumer there still spending. Robert Frank has the numbers. Hey, Robert. Hey, John. Well, LVMH reporting 17% sales growth in the quarter, but warning signs flashing here in the U.S. with sales in America falling 1%. CFO, CFO Jean-Jacques Guionnet saying the aspirational consumer in the U.S. is, quote, not shopping the way they used to. 
This is showing up especially in cognac and spirit sales, but also in leather goods and jewelry. He said it's the entry-level items that are falling, while the very high-priced goods, price goods that are basically for the wealthy, they are still performing well. There was one caveat, and I highlighted some of this last week. That was Americans who are shopping in Europe, thereby cannibalizing some sales here in the U.S. European sales were up 18% in the quarter. They said about half that came from tourists, and most of those tourists were American. The one bright spot in all of this was China. Despite fears of a slowing economy there, the Chinese wealthy, as you mentioned, are still spending strong. Sales in Asia, ex-Japan, were up 34%. Especially strong were sales of leather goods and jewelry. Now, LVMH also hit with higher expenses, especially from that blowout Pharrell Williams fashion show back in June company didn't break out the cost of that, but cited, quote, one-off promotional expenses that put a lot of pressure on margins. Luxury stocks have been under pressure since Richemont cited its slowdown in the U.S. last week, and you can expect more pressure on these stocks tomorrow morning when they open. Because again, John, China was an upside surprise, but the U.S. has been such a powerful engine of growth for these companies. And now pretty suddenly they're seeing that aspirational consumer drop out. Well, Robert, uh, I'm going to try to connect some dots. I don't know if they deserve to be connected, but give me your thoughts. We just had the Alaska Air CEO here on Overtime talking about international travel being particularly strong. That hurt him a bit. High-end consumers are doing that. But he said he expects that to rebalance in September. Does that hurt the likes of LVMH, who have been benefiting from those U.S. travelers going over to Europe, if in fact in September they're more staying home? Or is this such a high-end customer that LVMH has that they're still taking their ski trips in the winter in the Alps? Well, if those high-end consumers come back to the U.S. in September and start buying more of their luxury here rather than Europe, which they're doing this summer, that will help their earnings and sales in the U.S. But the big question is what happens to that aspirational community. People think about luxury as the wealthy. In fact, the bread and butter for luxury companies is that aspirational upper-middle-income consumer that splurges when they're flush with cash. Mm. They're not flush with cash right now. They're not spending. So I think even if you get those wealthy people coming back to the U.S. and even spending, it's not going to make up for that aspirational consumer that's very quickly dropped out of spending. You know what's going to happen to that aspirational consumer? Student loans. That's what's going to happen. So we'll see what they're still going to spend money on uh, after the fall. Robert, thanks. Coming up, Microsoft and Alphabet out with earnings in about two and a half hours. We're going to talk to the CEO of a company using AI to help boost productivity and sales at both next. And there are still a few hours left to get your virtual tickets to CNBC and Boardroom's Game Plan Conference. There's a QR code down there. You can scan it. That conference is bringing together some of the biggest names at the intersection of sports and business. Register and buy tickets, again, by scanning that code or heading over to CNBCEvents.com. Be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are just a couple hours away from earnings from both Microsoft and Alphabet. Investors are going to be listening for any AI color. But Gong, an AI startup once valued north of $7 billion, already providing software on those tech giants' platforms to drive sales, build skills. So how is enterprise software going to be disrupted and how soon? Well, joining me now for more is Gong co-founder and CEO Amit Bendoff. 
Mate, good to see you. Uh, so tell me, how quickly is this AI usage accelerating and whose platform of the hyperscalers out there is doing the, the best job of accelerating it? Well, we're seeing a huge boost uh, with the current uh, hype with AI right now. We started with AI in 2016 when the premise that uh, enterprise applications were outdated and can be transformed with AI. We've been shy about it like until now because like it was like too revolutionary for people, but now like companies are, are reaching out. Uh, what can we do with AI? Can we improve productivity? Like how can we cut costs? Uh, so, and I think everybody, a lot of companies will benefit from it. Uh, all the hyperscalers, the platforms will see like a huge boost because uh, AI is also compute intensive. So it does take uh, a lot of computer resources, but it can also increase productivity big time. So Microsoft announced this uh, 365 tier that they're going to charge 30 bucks more for the, the AI flavor. That got a lot of people excited last week. The stock went higher, um, but it also got a lot of competitors excited because they feel like, okay, now there's a big player in the space that's setting the buy high, bar high on pricing, kind of signaling that we expect to make some profit off of this. Were, were you happy about that also? Uh, I think it's a good thing for uh, uh, for companies to drive productivity with AI, and definitely uh, there's profits to be made because you know you can think of AI not just as technology, but as a, as a BPO. It replaces human labor, usually for people that are, are highly paid for menial work. So the opportunity is definitely out there, and uh, I think we're not even like scratching the surface of uh, what is possible. Uh, a lot of companies have been jumping on this bandwagon. Some were like uh, quick to crank up like a GPT this or a GPT that. Uh, mm -hmm. But the companies have been doing something real and deep uh, will succeed big time. And I don't think there's a limit to what the market will pay for that. But when? So last quarter was big for me in AI because we saw both the NVIDIA surprise to the upside, which sent that stock skyrocketing. And, and we saw the Chegg surprise to the downside where they warned, yeah, we got some concern that this is actually getting people to consider not signing up for us. What's the next signal going to be for investors within software that AI is having a near-term impact? Because, yeah, we can talk about what it's going to do several quarters, even years down the line, but when's the next and what is the next nearer-term impact? Well, it is it is already doing some things, and uh, uh, I don't think we're going to see like a, like an overnight uh, impact in terms of profitability of company. It's not like a one week, but we're already seeing the results of of work that took like uh, a lot of people's time being done automatically right now. Uh, I'm not sure what is the right signal for uh, for investors. We're focusing more on building the business. But there's no doubt that it's coming, and we see like uh, mandates from uh, from companies from the top down, reduce cost with AI, uh, it is clear that the opportunity is out there. One of the areas of most intense focus for you is sales and using Gong software and AI to assist salespeople in making the right kinds uh, of follow-ups to uh, potential leads, doing that in the right time, et cetera. Give us an example of uh, one of the, the best outcomes that you've seen lately from this newer technology? Oh, there, there are dozens, but let me give you a couple. So 
Uh, one of the examples, uh, AI kind of monitored one of our customers' conversation, and, and it recommended when you call on a new customer, please talk about one part of the solution and not the other. So, for example, if they had an iPad and an application, talk about the iPad before you mention this. That small change increased sales by 12%, which is uh, uh, massive. The other areas, think about all the work that people need to do. You meet with a customer, there's, let's say, over a Zoom call, and then there are like three huh. or four action items. Wow, uh, okay. AI can do all of that for you. I mean, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks for the examples. We're going to watch those earnings. Amit Bendov from Gong. That's going to do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.